Surgery Under the Snow by Greg Keaton. With amateur helpers and homemade instruments, a Swedish medical student faced the test of a lifetime to perform a complex eye operation on a fellow Antarctic explorer. South, almost as far as you can go, there was once in Queen Maudland a place called Mordheim. It consisted of two prefabricated huts completely covered by snow, headquarters of the 14 members of the Norwegian-British-Swedish expedition to the Antarctic. The men of this little settlement have long since scattered to their homes, their adventure of living for two years on the polar ice largely forgotten. One episode, however, they will never forget, an act of iron nerve and desperate ingenuity. On March 11, 1951, Alan Rees, the young geologist of the expedition, was working with two other men in the mountains near the advance base, some 320 kilometres southeast of Mordheim. He was hammering rock to get mineral samples when a chip of stone struck his right eye with the force of a bullet. Rhys dropped his hammer, dancing round wildly in agony. By the following evening, his eye was no better. A companion gave him a sedative and an eye anaesthetic from the first aid kit, which helped a little. But an eye injury is always frightening. On the lonely ice at the bottom of the world, it became a thing of terror. Somewhere in the mountains, not far off, was Ove Wilson, the Swedish medical student doctor of the expedition, but there was no way of getting in touch with him. Eight endless days passed before he returned. A lively, lanky fellow of 28, Ove Wilson knew a good deal of medicine, although he still lacked his full qualifications. But he was surprisingly dexterous, a born gadgeteer. He inspected Reese's eye with a small magnifying glass by the light of a torch in a dark tent. Healing had already begun, the pain was less, but the geologist seemed to be blind in that eye. Whatever the state of the injury, nothing could be done at this isolated camp. Wilson thought it possible that nature might take care of the situation. So when Reese, knowing that the expedition was undermanned, begged to be allowed to go on with his fieldwork, Wilson agreed. The geologist went back to taking rock samples. On May 31, 11 weeks after the accident, Rhys sledged into Mordheim and Wilson examined the eye again. Now Rhys was definitely blind in his right eye and the inflammation was still present. Because of what oculists call sympathetic ophthalmia, the injury might affect the sight of the healthy eye and cause total blindness. Inexperienced in such a crisis, Wilson radioed to Sweden's leading eye specialist, his old teacher at the University of Lund, Professor Sven Larsen. Following his instructions, Wilson treated the ailing eye with atropine drops for 15 days. When these brought no improvement, only one alternative remained. The injured eye must be removed promptly. This was a fantastic ordeal for a young medical student to face, thousands of kilometres from civilization. He had done some surgery at medical school, but always with an older surgeon at hand. He was talented and deft, but now he was up against the sort of win-all or lose-all test that comes once in a lifetime. Outwardly calm, Wilson started his preparations. Once more, he radioed Professor Larson for specific instructions. The leader of the expedition, Captain John Jeva, agreed that the need for surgery should be kept secret as long as possible from Reese 
and from members of the party not directly involved. No mean achievement, since the men lived together as intimately as a family in what amounted to two small rooms. No member of the expedition except Wilson had ever seen an operation. None had medical experience. Wilson chose men who had proved their steady nerves as his helpers. Fred Roots, the Canadian chief geologist, would be his assistant. The photographer, Burley Stig Halgren, was selected as anaesthetist. The glaciologist, Walter Schitt, was put in charge of instruments. Eagle Rogstad, the radio man, was picked to note the blood pressure, and Gosta Lilliquist, the meteorologist, was to take the pulse and keep the records. Each man received his assignment in Wilson's tiny cubicle. Wilson made a diagram of the human eye showing what had to be done. Then he explained how the instruments were to be handled and taught the technique of taking blood pressure and administering anaesthetics. The men practised their lessons privately. Halgren kept giving his fellow conspirators vitamin injections with his syringe. Roots tried the movements he knew he would have to make when the hour arrived. Wilson himself kept his fingers supple with an old surgeon's trick. He bound a piece of sewing thread to his little finger and practised tying knots with his thumb and forefinger. With the aid of Roots, Wilson set to work to make a special set of tiny hooks for pulling up the eye muscles. These were cut from steel soldering wire, filed, hammered and polished. Then they were set into the handles of dental instruments and secured there with the cement used for filling teeth. Out of sheet aluminium, they fashioned a pliers-like tool with slightly overlapping jaws, a crude but effective device for holding back the eyelids. It had only a faint resemblance to the instrument used by eye surgeons, but it worked. An oxygen mask was made of spare parts from the weasel or snow tractor. Wilson stitched caps, surgical masks and aprons for himself and his assistants from sheets. All this took place literally under the snow. From a distance, all that was visible of Mordheim above the sea of snow were the radio masts and exhaust chimneys. On July 18, Wilson broke the news to Reese. The geologist paled. I didn't think it was as bad as that, he said. The doctor told him of the radio messages from Professor Larson. Reese took a deep breath. Well, if that's the way it is, he said, I don't seem to have much choice. Looking hard at Wilson, he asked if he was confident he could do the job. Wilson assured him that he was, and Reese said quietly, I believe in you. He had only one request to make. Instead of the usual local anaesthetic, he wanted to be totally unconscious. That evening, Peter Mellaby, the Norwegian dog driver, made an operating table out of heavy sledge boxes, with even an armrest for the convenience of the anaesthetist. Snow, the only source of water, was melted in quantities, boiled and stored in flagons for use when needed. At one o'clock on July 21, Wilson gave his team a last-minute rehearsal. The table was dressed for the operation. Overhead, high-powered photographic lamps cast a brilliant light. Above the table was a powerful desk lamp. The doctor washed and scrubbed and donned his rubber gloves. He helped Roots and Schkitt on with theirs. At 2.45, Reese walked in, already a trifle drowsy from an earlier morphine injection. There was complete silence, then Reese said with a grin, Boys, I don't mind telling you that I'm scared stiff. They all laughed and felt a little better. 
Reese lay down on the table. Wilson cautiously administered the first injection of the anaesthetic and waited for the patient to go deeply asleep. Then he changed his gloves, pulled back the eyelids with the homemade instrument and framed the eye with gauze and adhesive. In addition to Reese, there were ten men in the room. The other three were in the next hut, too apprehensive to watch. One, the Norwegian surveyor Niels Roa, said, It feels like when I was waiting for my wife to have a baby. A moment before the operation began, Wilson closed his eyes and reviewed the steps he was going to take. Then he called for the first instrument. The operation lasted two hours, 40 minutes. The eye removed, Reese was carried to his bed. And suddenly everybody was dog-tired. There wasn't much talking. Wilson sat by the bed of the sleeping man. Once the pulse rose alarmingly, an injection brought it back to normal. Someone was on guard throughout the night, the men taking turns at two-hour intervals. At midnight, the patient awoke and murmured, Doctor, I am not asleep yet. You've already been operated on and you're in good shape, said Wilson. Reese muttered, Are you sure? Are you really sure? And he dropped off again. The following evening, his companions crowded round his bed. They offered him sweets and joked with him in an embarrassed sort of way. But there was no hilarity. As Captain Gieva said, we were all too sad. Nor was there any celebration later. It would be at least two months before it could be confirmed that the operation had been entirely successful. Two days later, Reese was on his feet, working, a black patch over the eye. By September, it was evident that this makeshift surgery under the snow by a novice doctor with apprentice nurses and homemade instruments was an unqualified success. Reese, now wearing goggles, went back to Chipping Rock. Wilson radioed detailed instructions to a firm at home. When the relief ship Norsel arrived at Mordheim five months later, she brought with her several artificial eyes. One matched Reese's eye perfectly. With a minor surgical adjustment, Wilson was able to fit the eye into place. When Reese moved his sound left eye, the artificial one moved too. Not much, but it moved. This was no illusion. When operating, Wilson had sutured the eye muscles together in their right sequence. The clump of muscles behind the artificial eye now moved it by friction simultaneously with the other eye. Reese was now fit to meet the girl who was waiting for him at home and whom he later wed. Ove Wilson graduated in medicine at Lund University, but he did not continue in practice. He had become fascinated by the study of man's physiological reactions to cold. His research in this field won him an international reputation. His patient, Alan Rees, was killed in 1960 in a plane crash in the Arctic. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.